0: Would you turn to First Corinthians, Corinthians chapter eleven? First Corinthians chapter eleven. Now, as you're flicking the pages, I want to start by saying that I believe uh, in this church, in this gathering. We've heard many, uh, many messages in the past to explain the role of the local church that it plays in God's redemptive history. And the joy of belonging to it. And I trust also that we do understand by now the value of being uh, an active member of the local church where a believer would uh, rise up, would stand and would uh, lift his uh, um, hand up high in the sky and would say, yes, I want to love and be loved. I want to serve and be served and obey all the one another commands in the scripture <clears throat> we've studied that the, that the local church the church is is the salt of the world and each community together is a unique meal with all of its beautiful herbs and spices, and and God offers um, this meal to the world so that they would taste the deliciousness of Christ. God founded His church to be the aroma of Christ, and each local church with its own unique blendedness of pleasurable, soft fragrance, um that would diffuse and it would spread and fill the community with the sweet-smelling aroma of Jesus Christ. Every Christian who wants to please his master, every believer who wants to look up on the sky and finds a smile on the face of his father, is a believer who would say, Father, I truly desire for Christ to be magnified, not my way, but your way. And what is God's way for Christ to be magnified? It is for you and I to make sure that we plug ourselves to a local church and together, together. We would be an entity distinguished from the world, set apart for the glory of God. And God calls each one of us to belong to a home, a specific community of believers, separate, marked out from the world, having one Lord, one faith, one purpose. And what is this purpose? That we would shine the floodlight of the gospel in this dark world. This is God's way of how we ought to live as Christians. Now, and for this message though. In order for us to be separate from the world, to be distinct, set apart to fulfill God's purpose. We've got to be clearly marked out. And the question for today is how does the local church get marked out? What is it that we do as a church that forms biblical demarcation so we could stand out and that we would be different from the world? Now, one might say, well, isn't this the the whole purpose of membership? Well, that's good. Of course, we've got to um, talk about church membership as we have done in the past um, but what about years after one is added to the church membership? How in God's plan as a church did God intend for us to continue to maintain this demarcation line that forms the church? In other words, another way of saying it, how do we Always keep a circle drawn on the sand and saying everyone inside this circle is set apart for God. Well, answer is Lord's Supper. This is why the ordinance of communion is so crucial to the life of the church as a community. Communion. Lord's Supper. I'll title this message, What is the Lord's Supper All About? Because if if the church membership is the entry door to the local church, then the Lord's Supper is the dining table. To be installed as a member is when a relationship between an individual and the church is established. It is when we say that this man or this woman is added to the body of Christ, to this body of Christ. This man, this woman is added to this family of Christ and the bond is set. The Lord's Supper, on the other hand, is a regular dinner time. And that's for all the family members to be present and to renew their commitment and to be reminded as to why God established this community in the first place. And so what I'm intending to do, Lord willing, for the, the remainder of this message is I want to cover um, many misconceptions in the minds of many Christians um, as to what the purpose is of the um, Lord's Supper, and who would participate, and, and the warning is at hand. Um, I won't be able to cover everything that can be covered. And it, in fact, it is for this um, purpose, I'd like to invite as many of you as possibly can make it to the evening service where we would open it up uh, to Q&A so we can make sure that everyone uh, who has any question regarding communion Um, to um, have that question answered. But for today, the outline is we're going to discuss the purpose of the communion, the partnership in the communion, and the peril or the warning at the communion. Now, while we were in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll be going through other passages in the Scripture, but this is where our main passage is going to be, the j- chapter, the full chapter of 1 Corinthians 11. And now we start with the first, first uh, point, which is the purpose of the communion. What is the purpose of the communion? And uh, I want you to start reading from verse 23 He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do it in remembrance of Christ. In other words, we commit the personhood, Of Jesus Christ to memory. We imprint his life into our minds. Now, why should we do this? To what end? What is God's purpose? Verse 26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim. And what is it that we're proclaiming? The Lord's death until He comes. So we proclaim the timeline of the gospel, stretching from back from His redemptive accomplishment all the way to His return. So we look back in time. And we proclaim the suffering crucifixion, how he bore the sins of his people, representing them before the Father, and how he drank the full cup of God's wrath on their behalf. And on the third day, how he rose again from the dead. Then we look up on the sky and we see that the gates of heaven are wide open. That God's arm of salvation is extended. And forgiveness of sin is offered freely in the name of Jesus to those that will come to him. And we look even deeper and we zoom in and we find them even right now seated at the right hand of the Father. Being our high priest, our advocate. We also look ahead and we proclaim, what do we proclaim when we look ahead? We proclaim his second coming, that he's coming back, that he's gonna take us home and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, and that we will forever be with him. So, the purpose of the communion is really the exaltation of Christ through the proclamation of his gospel. That's really the purpose. Of the communion. And may I add that this purpose is no different from the purpose of our gathering. The church. What what I want to do is. I want to take this opportunity. And I do want to show you in the scripture. How that this is indeed the purpose of the church. And that is equally the purpose of the communion. So. I'll go through some passages. So we start with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. A manifold wisdom of God might be made known Through the church. And in verse 11 it says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He, that's God, carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's eternal purpose is the same as the church purpose and it is the same as the communion purpose. They're all the same one purpose. God gave every local church One single, not not three, not two, one purpose. And that is to reflect his multifaceted diamond of his brilliant glory. That is to say, the proclamation of his gospel. Because it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we could see the beauty of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And His purpose may be worded differently depending on on the passage of the Scripture, but it's everywhere, everywhere. And the meaning is still the same. So in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, it says, Go make disciples. Acts 1, 8, To be Jesus' witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Philippians 1, 5, Participation in the gospel. First Peter 2 9. I love this verse. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you, now the you here is a plural you. So all of you put together. May proclaim the excellencies of him who has called all of you put together out of darkness into his marvelous light. God handpicks individuals. He saves them and then he plugs them into a community of believers. We as a church, as a community, distinct and separate from the world we exist for no other purpose but this one purpose first Timothy 3:15 it says the church of the living god the pillar and support of the truth the church is ever meant to be the bearer the upholder the revealer of the truth And that truth can only be found in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. The church is the only organism on the face of this planet that God entrusted with the advancement of the gospel. There's no one else, not individual, but churches. We call it Ministry of Reconciliation. And when we all together participate in the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the very purpose of our existence as a church. And as we are celebrating, what we're doing is that we are rededicating ourselves to this goal. As Paul says it, proclaiming the unfathomable unfathomable riches of Christ. That's the purpose of the communion. Now, second, the partnership in the communion. Partnership. The Lord's Supper is God's way to ensure that the blood-bought unity is maintained. Blood-bought unity is maintained. And it is through this unity that gospel is then proclaimed. Now, one might say, well, I get the gospel bit. I I understand. I understand that the communion is about the gospel of Jesus, that we remember him and, and all the above. I understand that. But when you speak about the unity, it's a bit too stretched. You're stretching it too much. I can't see in the communion really the importance of the unity. You might have someone that would say, you know what? I kind of like to come to church, have communion, perhaps with my family members, and I'm done. You know, I don't want to know much about mingling. I don't want to get too close to each other. I just want to have the communion and then go home. Where does the Word of God teach us that that unity is an essential part of the Lord's Supper? What I want to do is I want to show you the depth of that unity that this holy ordinance calls us to have. Now, I trust that you're still in 1 Corinthians 11. If you just go back one chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he still talks about communion. And in verse 16 of chapter 10, Paul says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless as sharing in the blood of Christ. This word sharing, meaning fellowship with or partnership with, being identified in, united with Christ. And that's a rhetorical question. He's saying, isn't that cup of blessing which we bless is an identification With the blood of Christ? Answer is yes. And he continues on. He says. Is not the bread which we break. A sharing in the blood of Christ? Yes. Well. Verse 17. Then he says. Well since there is one bread. We who are many. Are one body. Well why are we one body? He continues on. He says. For we all partake. Of the one bread. Now if you pay attention to what he says carefully, you find that it it cannot be any clearer than that. We are one body because we partake of one bread. What does this mean? When we come together as a church... To have the Lord's Supper, it is not about a collection of private worshippers of Jesus. Me, myself, and I, perhaps a couple of other mates or family member, and, and we just happen to be occupying the same place at the same time. You know, like um how if you would ever go to a soccer match, and then you find those who barrack for the same team, no one really knows anything about about each other. And, but since they're all occupying the same place at the same time and since they're all supporting the same team, they kind of celebrate together. Lord's Supper is not like that. As we eat the bread and drink the blood, we recognize... Whom he is who we worship. And what Paul is saying here is that since you are one with Christ, you're eating the bread, you are one with Christ. And since she eats the bread and she is one with Christ and he is one with Christ, therefore we are all one with one another. meaning the very life of Christ is running through our veins together from one to another, and He knits us together. The very nutrition, the multivitamins and mineral, and even Christ Himself is fed in and through us, joining our ligaments and marrows and bones and organs together. And He stitches my heart, To your hearts and my life with your lives, such as the manyness of us as individuals become one in Christ. Such that, as it says in Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and many other passages in the scripture, that we then have the same mind, same passion, same determination, To continue to lay down our lives for one another and we're partnering up together for the proclamation of the gospel. We become one body, one body that has one singular purpose. That's partnership in communion. But before we move on to the third point, I do want to address a misconception here because um one might say, "Well, yes, okay, I get it now, I get that when 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 we eat the bread together we become one, we are acknowledging that we are one body that's great that's really good because you know what I want to partner up with my Bible study group or my prayer group or um." You know, I want to feel really close to my mates, so I'm going to pull out some grape juice from the fridge and biscuits and we'll have communion with this small group of, of mine. No. The Lord's Supper is for the members of the local church. The partnership is with the whole entire church. It's something that the entire body of Christ does. The entire body of Christ does. And we look at this in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is really about the Lord's Supper, most of it anyway. And um, we see starting from verse 17, I'm just going to show you what it says very quickly so you can focus on who Um. Is in focus here as having a Lord's Supper. In verse 17, when it says, because you come together, you who, who is you? What is this personal pronoun, um, addressing? Well, first Corinthians chapter one verse in, in, uh, in, uh, in the introduction, it's the church of Corinth. You here is the church of Corinth. And we don't have to imply it. Why? Because in verse 18, he repeats it again. He says, when you come together as what? As a church. And that's exactly what he has in mind. When a church gets together. Verse 20, when you meet together. Verse 33, when you come together to eat. Verse 34, so that you, you as a church, will not come together for judgment. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance given by the Lord exclusively to the local church. It's not something for the Bible study group or family members or a group of friends that hang out together and they, you know, uh, some, some um, group um, that belong to the same church, they start to go for a picnic and one gets bored and says, you know what, I've got an idea. How about we have communion together? No. And this ordinance, nor is it um, to be practiced uh, in private behind closed doors with just my best mates, just only those who I feel most comfortable with. When the scripture says one body, as we read earlier in chapter 10, it speaks of the bride of Christ. This community of believers that are identified in a local church. It is given to the believers in that local community to rededicate themselves, their vows, and their covenant to one another in the Lord. Declaring that this is our purpose, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And equally true, to also declare that we are together one body, one body. So first point is the purpose, second is the partnership. God takes this unity in the Lord's Supper very seriously so much that failure to adhere to His instructions carefully could lead members to physical sickness and even premature death. So we'll come to the third point, the peril at the Lord's Supper. The peril at the communion. Communion comes with a, with a warning. And for this, we need to go to verse 30. And what we're going to do is something slightly different uh, that we haven't done before. is We're going to do, um, <clears throat> for, for lack of better word, moonwalk. We're going to go backwards. We start from 30 and we'll go backwards. Okay, so we read uh, verse 30, says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. This weak is physical weakness, and sickness, that's physical sickness, which leads to a number sleep. Sleep meaning death, death for believers. And it starts off by saying, for this reason. What is this reason? What is it in partaking a communion that could potentially lead to this destructive outcome? We look at the immediate context why Paul gave this warning. And we start from verse 27. We'll read to 29. It says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in what? In an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly. Not his body, the body, rightly. What does this all mean? What does it mean that you must examine yourself? What does it mean to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? What's an unworthy manner? Now, misconception again, right from the start. Some people read this passage and they overlook the very first word in verse 27, the word therefore, and not realizing that this word strongly ties and it connects the preceding passage to this paragraph. And it makes this paragraph subservient to the previous one, therefore. Now, failure to overlook this word and understanding the meaning of this word, they come to a wrong principle. And they say, well, if I sinned in any way, then I'm deemed unworthy, and therefore I can't partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, For example, they would say, man, I I just... uh, uh sinned against my spouse, my unbelieving spouse at home. I looked at my car in the driveway and I yelled at it, uh, at it. And and now I came to park my car um and then I beeped the horn at someone. I stuffed up badly. I don't want to eat and drink judgment. I don't want to die prematurely. I feel so unworthy, so I shouldn't take the Lord's supper. That's not what the text is saying. It's not about being unworthy. In fact, it's for being unworthy is the reason why we have communion. I mean, think about it. If this was true, if this principle was indeed true, then guess who? would not take communion, and who would take communion? Those who would know that they are unworthy, meaning those who believe that they need a Savior. There is more sin to be cleansed. They don't partake of the communion. And on the other hand, those who think that they are worthy, meaning they are so self-righteous, and they are so blinded to their own sin who don't really believe they need a Savior. They needed him once upon a time, but not today, since I am worthy and then they partake of the communion. That's bizarre. That is bizarre. It's not about you being unworthy. You know what it's about? Read the text. It's about the manner. Deemed to be unworthy. It says in an unworthy manner. What is this manner that is unworthy? Let's look at a few verses. Verse eighteen: When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Verse nineteen: For they must Also be factions among you. Verse 22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So what is this unworthy manner? Divisions among members, favoritisms, partiality within the body of Christ, factions among the people of God, or as Paul states it, despising the church of God. The Lord's Supper, yes, it's about the proclamation of the gospel, but it's not just about the proclamation of the gospel. It is not that you place yourself under the cone of silence and you say, it's me and my Jesus and uh, it's about the proclamation of the gospel and that's it. No, it carries with it the implication of the gospel. That God redeemed for himself a group of people. And he set them apart together to represent him as one bride, one body, and that is the local church. And if we partake of the Lord's Supper, claiming that we're one of those set apart, joined together, that we're collectively formed the body of Christ, the local church, to proclaim the gospel, and yet at the same time, if we live a way of life that is in an inconsistent manner, unworthy manner, with our claim, what does that mean? Divisions, fractions, no willingness to forgive or to love. There is no unity. What the Bible says is that this deemed to be an unworthy manner and it would warrant a great chastisement of God. God's hand will be heavy upon those guilty believers. You see, the Lord's Supper ties our love for God And the love to his people. We can't proclaim the Lord's death and yet at the same time despise the very people for whom he died. We can't do that. If we celebrate the Lord's Supper while despising and shaming God's people rather than loving them, what you're doing is that in one hand, you're joining yourself to the body of Christ and in the other hand, you're you're carrying an axe of division and you're axing and hacking the very body that you're claiming to be part of. How can anybody would say that Oh, yeah, I'm coming to partake of the Lord's Supper for sure. But I don't want to associate with individual believers in this local community. This would be as absurd as someone would say to his bride, yes, I want to marry you, but I don't want to have any relationship with you. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And God hates that. And so he instituted the Lord's Supper to ensure That we function right. The Lord's Supper, in that there is vertical commitment to the Lord. Yes, but there is equally horizontal commitment to one another. Now one more thing before we finish. I don't want to finish in in an unworthy manner and judgment. To uh, to believers, let's let's flip the coin on its head and and let's look at it more objectively. If this is what is unworthy, if this is what unworthy manner is, then what is the worthy manner? That's just the last misconception for today. In the morning, in the evening, we'll have Q and A, and perhaps we'll address even more misconceptions. What is this? What is the worthy manner then? Please note. Please note. Worthy manner is not the absence of the unworthy manner. It's the opposite of the unworthy manner. Let me explain and we'll come back to it and you'll know what I mean. If you go to a cemetery and you hang there for a while, you know what you will discover? Dead people don't have bitterness towards one another. Right. If you go to a cinema and you you go into a room and it's full of unbelievers watching the same movie together, and you know what you will discover? The chances are, most of the time at least, is that they don't have bitterness towards one another. They occupy the same room and there is no division among them. They're just sitting there and watching the same movie together. Brothers, sisters, what good is it if our godliness does not exceed that of dead people or a room full of unbelievers? Just because I say I don't have bitterness, well, what good is it? How am I fulfilling God's calling to be one body? Let me tell you your organs internally within your body, it's not just that they don't have bitterness towards one another, it's that they are willing to serve one another. Worthy manner is not the absence of unworthy manner, it's the opposite of it. It is being willingly, willingly, eagerly, wanting to maintain that spirit of love among the blood-bought people of God. In a very real and tangible way. Not just only wanting to be united with one or two members. And then disregard and disassociate with other members. But the whole body of Christ I want to love. I want to adore and cherish. Yeah, there will be degrees of different relationships. But in no way would I ever say I don't want to associate with a believer. In this local community. Brothers, if we treat the Lord's Supper lightly, you know what's going to happen? That line of separation between the church and the world will fade. And in the long run, it will have a huge impact, a negative one, mind you, on the gospel that we're meant to protect and, and shine. How serious do we have to be when we consider what it means to have the Lord's Supper? That there would be a life, vibrant, warm, love and openness Now our hearts for one another. Well, as we come to the end of the message, I just kind of formed together my thought to come up with answering that question. What is the communion all about, the Lord's Supper all about? And I came up with this communion. Is about exalting Christ to the level of preeminence. <clears throat> when in our hearts and minds we remember him to be fairer than the sons of men, that his glory would shine in our heart far more brilliant than the sun, and that in him are matchless riches. Inconceivable beauty and there is mercy and grace that he brought about to us. They're much sweeter than honey. We proclaim him. Know how we gladly would give him our hearts to, to rule and to reign freely. Just as a token of love to him. And in a lot of this, in so doing that, and if this is true, the outcome is that we will love those whom He loved in this congregation. And for His sake, we are willing to lay down our lives for whom He died for. And therefore, through our unity in His name, holding hands together, interlocking heart to heart, we are honored. To be called his body. And we make it our goal. To proclaim him. And his unfathomable riches. In his dying world. I think this is the heart. Of the communion message. I pray. That the heart of the communion message. Would be imprinted in our hearts. As I said. In the evening, we'll, we'll have more questions I trust and we'll answer many more misconceptions. But I do want to address before I finish, those unbelievers among us. Not necessarily just only those who come out and say, I am an unbeliever. But perhaps some among us who, who for long deceive themselves thinking that they're born again when they're really not. Someone came and told you that you're a Christian, but you have compared yourself, examined yourself, again, the, the Lord's Supper and the, and, 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 and the message of the Lord's Supper, and you found yourself always moving away from the body of Christ. And there's always division and faction. Perhaps you're not born again. For a long time, perhaps you thought that you are a Christian, your sins are forgiven, and you read the Bible, and you come to church week in, week out. But the matter of the fact is you're not a Christian at all, and your sins still abiding upon you. You're under God's wrath, and you're still deserving God's judgment. And you're headed for hell. And one day you will face your creator with his black garment as your judge. And he will declare you guilty and will cast you into eternal hellfire, so that you pay the very last penny for your sin. And that is eternity to come. I pray, if this is you, rather than risking your eternal life to reconsider, reconsider, friend, what Jesus said when he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Right? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world? If you have the the woman that you're looking for and the job, the perfect career path and all the money and the mansion and your mortgage is paid off and you have your your, your brothers, your, your, your children around you, your wife loves you. Imagine if all of this is true and your heart gives its last beat. And all of a sudden, you face God as your creator, and he says to you, this was your life. You've never honored me. You've never glorified me. You lived your life your own way, and now you're going to pay the price for it. What will it profit you? When 10,000 years before even your torment has even begun, you look back in your handful of days on earth Would you say it was worth it? Come to your senses. Don't be a fool. I urge you, friend. It is for this reason Jesus Christ came to earth. He broke through space and time. That wonderful, wonderful, glorious, perfect and holy God is equally so merciful. And so gracious that he came down to earth and he lived a life that you and I could never live, perfect in every way. And on the cross, he voluntarily died, bore the sins of his people and gave up his soul. The wrath of God fell upon him. He never deserved it. But he gave his soul and drank the very last drop of God's wrath so that those that want to come to him and be freed from their sin, they can come freely without paying a penny. The sin would be forgiven. He satisfied all that God demands of you. All you need is to come to Christ and let your soul be married to him. Let him be your Your Lord, let Him be your Savior. Desire Him to be your Lord and Savior. Follow Him. Hold on to Him. And I assure you, God's Word. And in the name of God's promise in the Scripture, and what Jesus Himself said, if you come to Him, He will not cast you out. My heart desire is for you, friends. Doesn't matter how old you are, young or old. Doesn't matter how, how long you've been deceiving yourself to think you're a Christian. My heart desire is for you to come to Christ. I offer you the gospel freely today. Would you come? Would you turn to Him? Beg Him to save you. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the continual reminder of your Son, Jesus, the King of our hearts, the Lord of our lives. And we are so thankful for the continual reminder of what he's done for us, how he willingly gave up his life to save us from our sins. But how we beg you, Lord, to make sure that every soul in this room understand the gospel and to be convicted of the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. Uh, It's our heart desire, Father, that as many as called eternal life would believe. Not next week, not next year, not, not tomorrow, not even today, but even now. That your spirit would work in people's life and draw to yourself many Lazarus. In Jesus' name, amen.